One of your True North leaders got me into a new podcast called The Big One. It's a short series about the inevitable demise of California. It's about the fact that soon enough there will be a, a large earthquake that decimates the world as we know it. And I don't see the... Okay. The idea behind it is to help you as a Californian to be prepared for the fact that there's going to be a massive, uh, a massive earthquake that is so large, it has the power to destroy everything that you and I currently know as modern civilization in California. There was even a movie made about it by my doppelganger uh, called San Andreas. Why are you laughing? San Andreas, where there was a tsunami that you know, crushes California. And it, well, the, the reality is there wouldn't be a tsunami because of the way that the plates are situated. They're not in the ocean floor. They're further inland. And so well, the idea behind this, though, is that in this podcast, the big one, you need to be prepared because what will take place is going to be something akin to Northridge, which was a 6.7 or so in 1994. In fact, it was January 17, 1994, when the Northridge earthquake hit. It was at 4.31 a.m. It was a magnitude 6.7 killed more than 60, injured more than 9,000, and caused widespread damage. Freeways crumbled, gas mains burst and caught on fire. Apartment complexes collapsed, and power was lost to vast sections of the city. Thousands of buildings were either destroyed outright or declared unsafe to enter and then later demolished. And so you can see some of the images from this catastrophic event. And they said, you know what, not only is that something that has previously happened, but you can expect this to happen again because it happens about every 50 to 100 years or so where California is, is, is getting hit by this, uh, this massive uh, plate tectonics that are moving underneath us. You got the North American or the, yeah, the North American plate and then the Pacific plate. They're currently inching across one another. But at some point, the, pe the pressure becomes so strong, they slip. And that slippage is going to cause devastating effects that ripple across California. And of course, the expectation is that 18,000 people, not 18,000, um, 1,800 people are expected to die. If this were to happen, uh, let's say it's a 7.8 on a non-windy day uh, at about 9 a.m., it would be 1,800 people will die, 1,600 fires will ignite, and most of those will be large fires. 750 people will be trapped inside buildings with complete collapse. 270,000 people will immediately be displaced from their homes, something akin to this, where you're having to live, into, you know, live in the, the, the high school gym. 50,000 people will need emergency care. Can you imagine that? Thousands of people heading toward a singular hospital. They would be overrun and, and, and you would have a massive issue because there would be no way for them to take care of all the people that are there. You would have to start uh, rationing off water. You wouldn't have access to water immediately available. The water that you just, just come out of the faucet, well, now you have to boil it. How are you going to boil it without a fire? You now have to work intensely hard to be readily prepared for this event that will take place. No one denies this. California will be hit by the big one. The question is, are you ready? And in fact, that's the question of today's sermon. Are you ready? Not for, uh, not for an, an earthquake, but for something a little more dangerous that is likely, very likely to happen to you in the near future, if not already. And here's the thing. As you can see on the graphic here, it's trials and storms of life that are being accosted to every person. The question is, are you ready to handle them? The disciples give us a really good example of how to respond and how not to respond when those situations come. So the question is not if, but when, and are you ready? In Mark chapter 4, starting at verse 35, we see Jesus uh, leading the charge here and helping us to get some sense of what we can expect when those situations happen. Take a look here, starting at verse 35. 
On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, let's go across to the other side. He's currently in the city of Capernaum, long day of preaching and teaching. And now he's saying to his disciples, let's go to the other side of the Sea of Galilee to, get it, to catch a break. Let's get away from the crowds. Let's try to uh, get our bearings so we can go and continue doing what we need to do. Verse 36, and leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat just as he was, meaning Jesus was preaching from the boat. They said, all right, Jesus, we're going to drag you along in the boat that you're presently in. And there were other boats with him. Um, the fact that there's other boats with him, we don't know why the, the author says that. There's never any real explanation given just for the fact that, hey, there's other boats with him. And the thing about this that's cool is that this tells you this is credible eyewitness testimony. Because if I were asking you, hey, you witnessed an accident. Can you tell me what you saw, what happened? You say, well, okay, the sky was blue, and then the light was red. This other guy was over here, and there was a blue car here, and there was a coffee shop on the side of the corner there. You're going to be giving me details that aren't necessarily tied to the event itself. But you're describing what you saw and what happened. That's what you have here. There's other boats with them. Jesus is also very popular. He sensed that there as well. And then a great windstorm arose. The word great is mega. It's a mega windstorm. It's massive. And the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. In this event, you have uh, this 12 or 13 disciples, maybe more, in the boat with Jesus. And they're saying, okay, the boat is now about to sink because this great mega windstorm comes upon them. And one thing I want to point out to you that's going to be common to every single one of us is that we're all going to come, uh, we're all going to come in contact with a mega event in our lives. In fact, you can put it like this. You're going to realize that no one is exempt from this. Everyone in all of life, because we live in a fallen creation, is going to be subject to severe trials, to mega trials, if you will. There's going to be issues and situations where you're going to say to yourself, I don't have the capacity to deal with this. I was trying to preach the gospel this week to a guy at a barbershop. He came in, kind of talkative, so I started building up a conversation with him, and I said, hey, uh, you know, where are you from? You know, it was just a random talk, you know this stuff. And I'm not a sports guy, so I can't say, hey, did you watch the game? Which is hard, because guys always talk about sports, but that's not my spiritual gift. So we talked about <laughs> other stuff. Uh, and so, hey, we found out, and this guy started sharing some pretty serious stuff right away. He found out that um, he watched his, I don't know why he even shared this, he watched his wife of 20, 30, I don't know how long, it was several decades of marriage. He watched her die over the course of seven years. Um, he just had come out of the hospital. He, was, he said he was in the ICU and he was in danger. His life was on the edge of survival because of a kidney failure. And so I, I'm, I'm thinking, man, this is important here. I, I wanna, this is a great opportunity for me to talk to this guy because he may very well be on his last legs. He may be exiting life. In fact, he was going to Chicago to visit his family who lived in that area. And I, I would imagine, given what he told me, that this is one of those like, hey, let's get together, you know, one, maybe one more time, get to see each other, hug each other, that kind of thing. Um, and so I said, so what do you, you know, what are your thoughts about all that? And, you know, trying to insert spiritual conversation in there as we're talking. Um, and I, it's funny. It's not funny at all, actually, but it's, it's devastating. Uh, I... I responded to his comment that he was a recovering Catholic. And I said, oh, that's interesting. Why is that? He says, well, all religions, they're all about money. You know, the, the guys at the front, they're all about wanting your money. And it's really all it is. You know, if that makes you happy, then hey, great for you. But really, when it comes down to it, religion's about money making. And I said, I, I disagree with you about that. I said, in fact, Jesus says, and that's all I said before he said, Oh, oh, never mind. I got to go. So I'm standing here. He's standing right in front of me. 
When he said, oh, 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 I got to go, he went from here to there. Oh, okay. (laughs) Talk about awkward, right? And there's a bunch of other guys standing around at the barbershop, and I'm like, okay, well, I guess that ended the conversation. You see, I I didn't even get a chance to say, Jesus says, I don't even know where I was going to go with that. Something about not loving money, I'm sure. And he just walked away. The name of Jesus alone was offensive to him. And I suspect the reason why. It's only taking a guess. I don't know the guy. But I suspect the reason why is because he had severe trials in his life. And instead of being softened by them and drawn to Christ, he was shaking his fist at God and saying, why would you do this to me? Why would you let me see my beloved bride slip through my fingers over the course of seven long, painful years? Then, instead of just taking me right away, you put me through this severe trial and throw me in the hospital where no one else comes to visit me. He mentioned that too. He said, I said, did, did church folk come to visit you? No, not really. You know, not really anyone came to came and called on me kind of thing. Seems like a really sweet guy, a nice guy. But I suspect that the trials that hit his life led for him to say, man, this is, this is terrible. God, why would you do this? The reality, young person, is that all of us, Christian or not, will suffer through trials. But let me just offer this to you. I think following Jesus will lead you into more trials and not less. In fact, if you recall in the beginning of this, who was the one who initiated crossing the Sea of Galilee? It was Jesus. Do you remember that? Jesus is the one who said, hey, let's go to the other side, guys. And the disciples say, okay, we're going to do that. We're going to follow you, Jesus. You're the one who's follow, uh, leading. We're going to follow you. We'll do what you say. And just, and just in that very same sense, uh, Jesus is the one who led them into the storm. He knew it was coming. He's God in the flesh. He knows what's happening. It was his decision. But here's the thing. It will likely cost you more to follow Christ uh, than to do life on your own in this life. You, you ought to expect that. It will likely cost you a lot more. In fact, I can even say that it will be painful for you to follow Christ because as the disciples here are figuring out, it was costly for them to say, Jesus, whatever you want. We're going to do what you want to do. But here's the thing. Jesus was doing the same thing. Remember back in Mark chapter 1, it was the Spirit who led Jesus into the palace, Spirit who led Jesus into a fancy hotel, Spirit led Jesus into a prosperity ministry, Where did the Spirit lead Jesus in Mark chapter 1? The desert. And then, what did the Spirit lead him to do? Was it something like, oh, hey, I want you to perform some miracles in the desert. I want you to set up your name and make sure everyone knows who you are. No, he said, I'm pushing you into the desert, driving you in the desert. For what purpose? To tempt him, to test him, to be tempted by the devil. And in a very similar sense here, Jesus is leading his disciples to, to go through a very similar situation. It's not a desert of sand, you know, or palm trees, it's a desert of water. And his disciples now are facing a very real trial and temptation. Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted, and Jesus will lead us into a wilderness to be tempted. Not only will Jesus lead you into trials, but let me say this also, the trials will be more than you can handle. There's a popular cliche saying that Christians can throw around, and I think it's well-intentioned, but it's wrong. And it's the opposite of what letter B says. The, the saying is, hey, God will never give you more than, than you can handle. If you've been a Christian for any more than just a few minutes, you know that's probably not even true experientially in your life, much less true biblically. The, the truth of the matter is that the trials will be more than you can handle. In fact, the disciples are a good example of this. The boat was overflowing, and four of those guys at least are fishermen. And so if they're saying this is a bad situation, you know it's a bad situation. These guys knew the Sea of Galilee. They, they grew up here. They, this is their, their trade. Their family had passed this down to them. So they knew what it was to deal with difficult uh, situations in the water. And yet, they're freaking out. This was a situation where they could not handle it by themselves. 
And there is going to be a million situations in your life where you will not be able to handle it by yourself. You will be forced to cry out to Jesus for his help. And that's the point. That is the point. In fact, I can also say this. Often people fail to come to Christ in the first place because they're not humble enough to want to come to him. They don't think they need him. It's only when God humbles you to the place where you realize, I can't. In fact, we, we heard this in one of the testimonies this morning. We, I can't do this by myself. I'm unable to. I don't have the ability to do life all by myself. This is what the purpose of the trial is, in part, to cause you to depend more on Christ and not on yourself. Trials will come, and they're meant to be more than you can handle. But that's the point. And by the way, the trials come at a moment's notice. Did you, did you notice how the storm asked the disciples, hey, is now a good time to kind of get ruffled up and sink your boat? Did the storm send him an email and say, hey, just FYI, like you to RSVP, we're going to have a storm on the Sea of Galilee, let me know if you can make it, can you be there, be really helpful for this trial and temptation you're about to go through? No, none of that happened. None of that happened. It was at a moment's notice. Everything changed in a moment. Everyone is subject, and it doesn't wait for a convenient time to wreck your life. There is a time and a season coming for you. If you're not in one right now, you're going to be in one eventually and soon enough. I asked the guy at the barbershop, how did you deal with your wife dying over that seven-year period? He says, I don't know. I just, I just did it. I felt bad for him because he, he, he didn't say it like this, but I, I heard him say, I have no hope. <laughs> I, don't, I, I, have, I clearly didn't have any friends because they didn't visit me at the hospital. I have no hope to rely on. I just had to go through it, keep my head down, and keep moving forward. The trial did the opposite to him. It didn't bring him to God. It pushed him away from God. As one author once said, God whispers to us in our pleasures, but he shouts to us in our pains and our trials. Every trial that you're going through is meant to draw you to himself. He's calling you to come to him, to lean on his strength. The disciples didn't resign themselves to death, but they didn't, they didn't handle this well either. Take a look at the next verse here. Just one verse, Mark 4, 38. says this, But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. This is Jesus now. So imagine this crazy storm happening. Jesus is, for some reason, able to sleep in the midst of this terrible storm on a cushion. And they woke him up and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? You've got to wonder what this was like for the disciples who were going through this situation and seeing that they're, they're, they're losing it, right? They're, they're panicking, they're terrified, and Jesus is somewhere over here with his head on a pillow just chilling. And you have to, I don't know if he's just, he's probably super exhausted. That's part of it. But he's over here, and they're over here saying, we're going to die. Someone go wake up Jesus. And I'm sure they all looked at each other like, I don't want to do it. You do it. I don't want you do it. I know you wake him up. <laughs> and then I'm sure someone comes up to Jesus and says, hey, uh, Jesus, it'd be a good time to wake up. These guys are afraid. <laughs> it'd be really good if you help us out at this point in time. Uh, Jesus responds to them, but you'll notice, look at what they say to him. Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? In fact, they could have said it, teacher, you don't care. You're asleep at the wheel. We need you, and you're just there lying down while we're dying. Yeah, terrible situation. They found a boat in 1986. It actually looks probably a lot like what Jesus was in. This is what it looked like. They got it out of the Sea of Galilee. And this is dated to the first century. So this perhaps may have been, could have been something that Jesus wrote in. But this is found in the Sea of Galilee. Uh, it's dated, again, first century, 1986. If it was fully constructed, it might look something like this. 
But in the images, in the paintings, you see how this storm, you can't even see the boat in this one because the storm and the waves are crashing against the boat so, so wildly that you, you just sense that they're in peril immediately. The fact is that they did a terrible job. <laughs> the disciples did a terrible job responding to the storm. In fact, I think if you and I were there, we'd probably respond just the same way. But here's the thing. I think what Jesus uh, is about to say and what their question relays is that they really did not rest in him. They weren't trusting Jesus. And that's really the, the opposite of how we should respond. In fact, hear me put it like this. Point number two, you need to rest in the fact that God never sleeps. And I realize that that point number two is ironic. It's meant to be that. Because God was, was apparently sleeping on the stern with a cushion. Jesus was sleeping. How long can you live without sleep? You ever think about that question? I don't know the answer to that. And I don't think there is an answer because no one's ever tested it. But according to the Guinness Book of World Records, when they were recording this, the, the longest recorded record for uh, no sleep is 264 hours or 11 consecutive days. Um, and that was set by a guy named Randy Gardner in 1964. He wanted to prove that nothing bad could happen when you deprive yourself of sleep, so he stayed up 11 days. Now, since then, the Guinness Book of World Records has stopped recording this because they don't want anyone to endanger themselves, and they don't want to encourage that by saying, hey, this is how much you can endanger yourself before you kill yourself. So they stopped recording and they stopped telling about that. But there's one agency back in, a, in Australia that recorded that the longest consecutive, the new record for the longest amount of time that someone can stay up was 18 days, 21 hours, and 40 minutes incredible. I saw this and it inspired me. Starting next month, we're going to start a new event called Up All Month, where none of us are sleeping for 18 days and 22 hours. Thank you. Thank you. You knew I'm never going to do that. <laughs> Up all day. Up all afternoon. Let's do that one. Sleep is a gift. It's a good thing. We should, we should embrace it. We shouldn't love it, the scriptures say, but we should enjoy the fact that sleep is a gift that he's given us. And in fact, the reason you can rest is because you feel safe. The reason you can enjoy sleep is because you feel a sense of security where you are. If you are sleeping in the middle of a forest with no uh, blanket, no tent, no something or other to, to keep track of you, you might struggle to sleep a lot more. You might say, well, what if a bear comes over here and eats me? It's a very valid concern if you're camping. I don't know why anyone would camp when a bear could eat you, but you see my point. If you feel safe, though, you're going to sleep a lot better. Have you ever had a baby fall asleep in your arms and the baby just becomes dead weight? Like it's just, like just flop there. Oh, when my baby comes along, you can do that with my baby. I'll let you hold her and she can flop in your arms. But the idea is that when, when it, that's a compliment, by the way, because the baby trusts you. I, I, could, I could be safe in your arms. There's, there's, a, there's a good thing there. The thing is, we, we don't rest uh, if we don't trust. We can rest because God doesn't. In this account, you see Jesus sleeping, but is God really asleep at the wheel? That's the question to ask here. Here's the thing. When the trial comes, when you've failed a test you studied hard for, or when you lost a good friend who couldn't stand your Christianity, or when you lose a parent, or both, to some tragedy, or some cancer, or some other thing, or when you find yourself alone with no one to comfort you, or when you're diagnosed with some deadly disease, and by the way, it's going to happen to you like the rest of us, studies show that we're probably going to die from cancer or heart disease. Most of us. It's going to happen. And if it's going to happen to you, it's going to happen to the people around you. 
I mean, there's just so many things that could take place in your life at any given moment. And the question is, okay, what are you going to do when that happens? Let me tell you some things that you're going to be tempted to think. And based on what the disciples did, you're going to be first tempted to say, well, God, you don't care. God, why don't you, why don't you do what I need you to do when I need you to do it? God, you don't care. And that's what the disciples do to Jesus. Teacher, don't you care that we're perishing? We're in a boat. We're about to drown. Teacher, what are you doing? But I think all you have to do is just pay attention for a quick second and realize that God, God does make his care tangible. It can be seen. How? Well, first and foremost, in the incarnation itself. In the incarnation, Jesus is fully God and fully man. He was sent to earth to indwell a body. It was deity encased in flesh. And in that flesh, what Jesus did was not come to rule and reign from a cushy palace. Jesus didn't come and suddenly set up a kingdom where he could legitimately rule and reign and crush us. He didn't do that. Jesus instead came to embrace our weakness and to adopt our pain. Jesus didn't come in riding a, you know, he came in riding a donkey, not even a horse, a donkey. Jesus knew what it was like to have his closest, most intimate friends run away when he needed them most. When Jesus was headed to the cross, do you remember that story how all of his closest disciples stood with him and fought the crowds and defended his cause and told everyone how he was innocent and shouldn't be crucified? Do you remember that story? Yeah, me neither. It's because it didn't happen. Jesus' closest friends and confidants rejected him, abandoned him, which meant Jesus knew what it was like to be lonely, and even on the cross itself, Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus was rejected. He was lonely. He was abandoned. Jesus was encased, deity encased in flesh in order to sympathize with our weakness. Remember that passage? We don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weakness, but has been tempted in every respect as we are, and yet was without sin. Jesus is meant to show us God cares enough to send his son encased in a body to, be, uh, to, 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 to connect with us, to, to know us. Philippians chapter 2 says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But instead, he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of what? Death. You want to know that God loves you and God is not uh, calloused? Take a look at the death of Jesus. It is Jesus' death that is proof positive beyond a shadow of a doubt that he is willing to care for you and love you. He willingly bore the wrath that you deserve. He willingly bore the wrath that I deserve. 1 Peter 3.18, Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. God makes it clear to anyone who has eyes to see and ears to hear that God cares for us. He's not callous. When you're going through the trial and temptation, notice again, Jesus is the one who's bringing you along. 
It's not that he's callous. He's got a purpose in this. He does care. Look at the incarnation and then look at Jesus' death. You might also be tempted to say, well, God, you're not here. Fine. Maybe you care, but you care at a distance. This is a deism type God. You care for me from that part of the world where you're not paying attention to my life. You don't care about my feelings, my emotions. You don't care about anything that's going on in my life. But the truth of the matter is that God is benevolently uh, connected to you. His, his presence is benevolent toward you. That means uh, benevolence is the opposite of malevolent, mal, bad. God's bad presence, his judgmental presence, his wrathful presence is not for you if you were in Christ. Now, going forward for the rest of your life in Jesus Christ, God is for you. His benevolent presence is with you. In fact, it says here, Matthew 28, 20, Jesus said, behold, I am with you how long? Call it out. Always. Behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. But answer me this question, Christian. Jesus is left after this, this verse, right? Hey, behold, disciples, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. By the way, deuces, I'm out. Okay, well, how does that work? How does that work, Jesus? You just said you were going to leave and you're gone, so okay. They had to wait all the way until Acts chapter 2 to figure out what he meant by this. But what we know to be true now is that Jesus is with us in his Holy Spirit. Paul calls the Holy Spirit the Spirit of Jesus Christ. That's how we can have Jesus with us forever and ever. In fact, when Jesus left, here's what he was saying essentially. It is better that I not be with you physically. It's better that I'm not with you physically. It's better that I'm with you spiritually from the inside man, the inside woman. Uh, one pastor put it this way, it's, it's, it's Jesus saying, it's better that I'm inside you rather than beside you. It's better that I'm not holding your hand and walking with you, I'm in you, with you, in a, in a new and profound sense. This is the promise of the Old Testament. This is the, the privilege that you and I have, that God would be with us, controlling us in some weird sense where our spirits are compelled by him, where we now can say, God, I'm following your lead from the inner person. Jesus said, I'm going to ask the Father and he'll give you another helper to be with you forever. The Holy Spirit is permanently indwelling in and with you if you are a believer. In fact, Jesus said in John 16, 7, he says, I tell you the truth, it's to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I do go, I will send him to you. Jesus inside you is better than Jesus beside you. Holy Spirit is the one, the third member of the Trinity. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. All three are co-equal and co-eternal. All three of them are fully God. All three of them are not the same. They're three persons in one essence. Which is why we can say, even though Jesus in the person was asleep, God the Father, God the Spirit were not asleep. God is still fully in control of every single thing that happens in life. There is not a single atom or molecule that is outside his perfect sovereign rule and reign. The Holy Spirit and the Father fully in control while Jesus the man slept. Which, by the way, tells you something. Again, Jesus was a man. He hungered. He thirsted. He had to sleep. He had to do all the other things that come with being a human being. It's amazing. In these last few verses here, what we get a chance to see is how Jesus responds to their, I mean, their, I mean they rebuked Jesus. Who among us is brave enough to rebuke Jesus? And I get it. These guys were panicked. They were terrified. They rebuke him. <laughs> they rebuke him. And what you're about to see is the, the glory and the majesty of Christ in his response. 
Prepare to have your mind blown with the God-man who responds to them in a way that is probably surprising and yet challenging all in the same, in the same moment. Jesus gets, gets up. He awoke and he rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind listened and there was great calm. Now, pause for a second and put yourself in that boat, okay? Put yourself in that 18-foot boat or so. Waves are coming in, crashing. Everything around you is chaotic. It's torrential. You're wondering if you're going to make it out alive. Okay, so, and the wind is howling. It's loud. It's, 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 it's just chaotic. This kind of scene that just shows you, okay, if something doesn't change, we're dead. Jesus gets up and says, peace, be still. And suddenly, silence. If it was this mega storm, it would take some time for everything to settle and die down. You still see some bubbles on the lake or something. You'd still, you know, the, 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 ruffle, the, the, the wind would probably slowly stop. But you don't get that sense here. What you see here is Jesus saying, peace be still. The wind stops. No sound. Not even so much as a gust in the air. Because Jesus spoke and creation listened. It's like a wild dog, you know, and the neighbor's dog is out and about running and peeing all over everything. You try to yell at the neighbor's dog, like, get off my lawn, dude, I don't like you. Go somewhere else, stop peeing on my lawn. And the, the dog's just not going to listen to you. But the second his master speaks, Sparky, or whatever the dog's name, Charles, come over here. The dog, oh, he goes, <laughs> Ears perk up and he runs back to his master and knows immediately who the boss is. Creation knows who the boss is. Creation knows his master's voice. Here's Jesus. The wind immediately stops. The, winds, uh, the waves immediately calm and they're settled like icy glass sea. And there's Jesus standing there. And by the way, you see at the beginning of this, there was a great storm, right? A great windstorm. And now there's a great what? mega calm. Check out what happens. Jesus says to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? See, Jesus expected them to respond differently. He put them in the storm with the hopes that they would respond the right way. And so Jesus expresses disappointment here and he even, he even, uh, he even rebukes them. Why are you afraid? Have you still no faith? If you thought the disciples were afraid before, read this next. And they were filled with mega great fear. They said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? You may not fully understand why they're responding this way, but just put yourself back in that boat for a second. If the man that was previously sleeping, wakes up and commands creation to jump, and the creation says, how high? I think you would be like, what just happened? Yeah, I know, I, some of us are kind of callous to this because we see Marvel movies and we have all this flashbang CGI that makes you know, the remarkable look unremarkable. Like we can see it in IMAX and it's really cool when Iron Man smashes through a window or when Godzilla's crushing a city or when my doppelganger is saving his wife in a helicopter while the city's crumbling. Oh, we look at that and we're like, oh, it's pretty cool, yeah. And the, the, the thing that happens though is we stop feeling that sense of what if that really did happen? Like if someone really does command and everything listens, it's like, well, I've seen that before. 
the Hulk did that, you know, or whatever. When Jesus is doing that, this is not, his, this is not a historical fairy tale. This is historical narrative. This is what happened. If a man commands the ocean and the wind and suddenly everything listens and it's perfectly still, you would be terrified. Whenever you're in the presence of deity, every time you see it in scripture, the person doesn't say, this is really cool. Let's hang out. Come to my birthday party. I would love to have you show this to my friends. They get terrified as you and I would rightly and should rightly be. The point of this though, the point of this, this narrative is not, hey, Jesus can calm the storms in your life. He can. But remember what Jesus' question is. He says, why are you so afraid? Have you still, still no faith? Jesus' expectation was that you would trust him. That's our third point. You need to trust God's active care for you. Trust in that, believe in that, embrace that. And really, uh, I think what, come, what it comes down to, young person, is that you need to have a high view of God to believe in him, to trust him. You need to know that he's bigger than you, that every single atom in your life is controlled, directed by God's good and gracious hand. Romans 8 tells us that God orchestrates, he manages, he predicts, he puts together all things for those who love him. Everything in all creation is subject to God. You need to believe that. He is incapable of failure. God is incapable of failure. His plans cannot be thwarted. You cannot outsin the grace of God. You can't outsmart God's wisdom. You need to have a higher view of God if you're going to trust in his care for you. So what you need to remember first and foremost is that in Christ, God's unlimited power is for you. God is operating from his heavenly throne and he's orchestrating all of life for your benefits. Again, Romans 8, he says it's going to work out for your good. And ultimately, for my glory, he says, I will orchestrate all of life for your good and for my glory. Do you believe that? You need to believe that God, in all of his wisdom and all of his power, is coordinating every second of your life, which means, which means this, which means this. When you are terrified, when your life is crumbling, when your friends reject you, God is doing this for your good. You can believe that and have the hope to carry on, or you can reject that and struggle every moment of the way. God's unlimited power is for you. It's exercised for your good. Not only that, but through Christ, God expects our faith to grow. Some of you guys have been at Compass for a thousand years. Since before you were born and probably in a thousand years in the future, you're going to be here. The question then is, does your knowledge match your faith? Don't tell me that you know about the inner workings of the Trinity. Show me your faith. Show me that you get it. It does not help you to simply know about penal substitutionary atonement if that doesn't have a place in your life. You'll know that you get it when you're living it. You'll know that you understand when you experience it by having a real relationship with God. Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? His disciples learned from Christ. They followed him. They spent time with him. And the question was, do you still not get it? I, I, I expect more from you guys. 
You are so incredibly blessed to have the opportunity. You can, you can page through 500,000 different translations of the Bible. You can listen to any preacher in the whole world, great and otherwise. You can read all the commentaries from all the greatest men who ever lived, who knew Christ. We have a lot of privilege. And yet the Bible tells us that we, when we don't respond to this, we're like a person who looks in the mirror and says, oh, I got a boogie, got an eye moco, but no big deal. I'm just going to keep going. We're looking into the word of God. We have privileges of all this treasure. And Christ is unabashedly saying, I expect you to grow, young person. I expect you to understand the gospel. I expect you to respond to the gospel. I expect you to not only understand, I can calm the storms of light, but to walk with me through them. Psalm 23 says, though I walk through, what? A beautiful garden of lush scenery, of nice and beautiful things. I walk through the valley of the shadow of death with you, Christ. I can trust you. God expects your faith to grow, not just your mind. God expects your faith to grow, your love for God, your response to God. Some of you guys are really smart. You guys know a lot of theology. Show me your faith, though. That's what Christ expects of you. The disciples didn't do this last thing, but they should have. They see the ruler of the universe commanding creation, and what they should have responded with is, you are the Christ. Now, Mark is saving that until chapter 8. But they should have been able to see, man, you are the God of heaven and of earth. You're the creator. You're the sustainer. Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 17 says, He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. This is the exalted Christ. And yeah, he didn't fully display that. But man, when you see someone calm the water and the wind, you have to say, who are you? You're the king. You're the king. Hebrews 1.3, Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Jesus speaks and everything happens. Amazing. You need to trust in God's act of care for you. That trust looks a lot like day by day following in his footsteps, reading your Bibles, praying, trusting in him, telling people what the gospel is. And for some of you, getting baptized for the first time. Hopefully, you know, there's more than one time, but getting baptized, period, no first time. The reality, guys, is that for most of us, Jesus will not command the wind and the waves to stop. He probably will not do that for most of us. What he will do, though, and what he has done, he says, I promise to be with you in those storms, never to leave, never to forsake you. This podcast, during one of the end of the final episodes, the reporter asks one of the Angelinos, he says, hey, do you know that there's going to be this massive earthquake? And he says, yeah, I know about that. Um, so, so what do you think about it? And the guy says, well, I try not to think about it. Just put it out of my mind. We can be a lot like that. We pretend like, oh, life is good right now. It's always going to be this way. I'm going to live happily ever after. I should, you know, enjoy it while it lasts. But here's the thing, guys. The storms of life are coming. The trials are coming. If you're not in one already, the question is not if but when and are you ready for it? They will come. And if you're a Christian, 
You can say, like Charles Spurgeon, I can kiss the wave that throws me against the rock of ages. When you realize that storms and trials are for you, to train you, to grow you, then hey, bring it on. I'm ready to suffer for the sake of Christ. But if you don't know Christ, then all of the surrounding pain and torment that you go through in this life is going to crush you. You'll be driven to one of two extremes. You'll be driven to Christ to say, okay, I get it, you're, you're, the, you're the boss, I'm not, or I hate you, stay away from me. You've caused me enough pain. See, this person doesn't understand what God is doing. This person doesn't understand that sin has ravished creation, including your life. This person understands that all of the suffering, all the pain is meant to bring you to a singular point, Christ. Jesus suffered. Jesus took on the pain that we deserved. Jesus is our ruler, our sustainer, our hope, our anchor. Do you know him? If you do know him, do you know him enough? Is your faith vibrant, real, responsive? Let's pray.